Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all. Um, if you don't know me or if you're new here, my name is Matt Stone. I'm an associate pastor here. Uh, and we're so glad that you're here with us uh, to worship the Lord, to receive from his word. Uh, and there's a wonderful thing going on as we're looking at the very sort of end of our Bibles as we're wrapping up the, our study of the book of Revelation. Uh, if, if you've got your Bible with you, or if you don't, reach down, grab the one in, the, in, the, in front of the, the pew in front of you. We're going to be looking at uh, Revelation chapter 22, verses 6 through 15. Verses 6 through 15. Um, there's kind of a, a beauty as, as, not kind of, there is a, a wonderful beauty as God's word is, is, is being sort of threaded through history, as, as Trevor hit on, and, and so did Pastor Justin. Um, there's, a, there's a wonderful unity to Scripture that uh, is being revealed to us as we close out uh, Revelation. We're, we're going to be closing it fully in, a, in just a few weeks. But Jesus is telling us about the new creation and our place in it by faith in him, and he's telling us about the fact that he is coming soon and that we need to be ready. Christianity isn't based solely on the sort of the, the one time you professed faith in Christ. Yes, Jesus did something in saving us and in justifying us in theological terms. We receive his righteousness. He receives our unrighteousness, excuse me, our sin. Uh, but it's also about what Jesus is still doing in our lives by the Spirit and what Jesus is going to do when he comes again. And many of us understand this coming again we think about it and it seems a little far off but try to think about it this way thanksgiving is coming we're about a month away and i don't know if you've already started making plans uh, but some of us in this room will be hosting thanksgiving and there's this weird thing that church going midwesterners do we start to clean every nook and cranny right like the top of the fridge has to be dusted in case there's a guest who's seven foot two like looking down on the fridge. And so you're, you're getting ready. You're cleaning up. No one wants to invite guests into a dirty home. You want to make them feel special. You want to make them feel honored and, and like you care, right? So we, we get ready when we know we've got company coming. The knowledge of someone's arrival, it does something to us. It's not just a mental thing. Maybe some of you are mentally preparing for conversations you're going to have to have with weird, you know, Uncle Ned about politics or whatever, but uh, it's not just a mental exercise, it's physical. We get ready. Jesus is coming. He said it for 22 chapters of Revelation, and the question we're wrestling with is, what does that mean for us? So let's read the passage together. We're going to read about Jesus' coming arrival, and then we'll pray, and then we'll have some points that are going to sort of organize how we're thinking about the text today. Revelation Chapter 22, verses 6 through 15. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, 
and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. As far as the reading of God's word, would you pray with me? Father God, we are struck by the stark contrast in your word. Those who have washed their robes are welcome to come in, come into the gates and to have authority, have the right to the tree of life. Outside are those who would not profess belief, those who would not bow the knee in submission and humility before Christ Jesus. May that contrast awaken our hearts to see our need for your grace again today. Father, we come in and and we're weary, we're tired, we're sin-laden, heavy burdened. Would you wash us thoroughly, cleanse us from our iniquity, create in us a new heart, and renew a right spirit within us. Help us to see what Christ has done on our behalf, what Christ is doing on our behalf, what Christ will do, Finally, when he comes, we pray for those who are suffering today, suffering and not knowing who to turn to, not knowing that you're a a trustworthy shepherd, as Jeremy commented on, not knowing if they can lean on anybody. They think their sins are too grievous, their hearts are too hard, they're too gross or ashamed to come before you. Remind us, Father, that you pursue us in the pit. We don't have to clean ourselves up. Indeed, we cannot clean ourselves up. You can clean us, Father. And you have promised to do so by the blood of the Lamb. Pray that we would see that vividly today. I pray now that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive your word, to receive it with encouragement, to receive it with conviction and and restoration, to receive it, to be empowered to go and tell others about this Jesus that loves us, that knows us, that died and rose for us and is coming again. We pray these things in his name. Amen. The guest of greatest honor is coming soon. And so we want to think about what that does for us. What's our response supposed to be? So we're going to look at this text through three points today that center around Christ's return. Point number one, trusting Jesus' arrival. Number two, understanding our response. And number three, seeing Jesus' call. Trusting Jesus' arrival, understanding our response, 
seeing Jesus called. Look with me again at verses 6 and 7. He said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. What can you trust nowadays? You look around and uh, it, it's online, it's social media, it's, it's magazines, it's in the papers. There's a cultural conversation going on about misinformation. That, that truth really isn't something to be found unless you find it yourself. And even then it's kind of hard to hold on to. We're in an age of people uh, getting scammed. You've got to tell all your elderly relatives to not answer phone calls. People, young people are getting catfished. Uh, online they think they're going to go on a date with somebody and it turns out to be you know a 55 year old guy in his basement um people are getting scammed they're getting duped they're getting deceived there's lies there's manipulation so the the way that this passage begins it's kind of strange if somebody walked up to you on the street and said well this this saying is trustworthy and true you probably laugh first you want to know who this person is and, and what in the world they're talking about. We don't, we don't talk like this apart from how we act. And so uh, the beauty uh, of Christ as the lamp, something that, that came in the previous section, that the angel is wanting to double down. This is trustworthy and true. And maybe he is sensing that there are going to be generations of skeptics and doubters who are thinking, is, is Christ really coming? And so this angel says, Everything I've shown you is some of the proof of what you need. There's been battle scenes and destruction and opulence and recreation and the lamb and the beast. And some of this language is very symbolic. Yeah, yep. But a symbol doesn't mean that something isn't true or trustworthy. Here in Madison, a lot of us drive around uh, with uh, a, a Blizzard coupon in our wallet or in the middle console, uh, right of the vehicle, the glove box, wherever. That coupon is not ice cream yet. But it becomes ice cream once you go to the drive-thru and you get the craving. So the, these symbols are true, they're trustworthy. And, and John, uh, through the angel, wants us to see that, wants to believe that. It's not just that, though. The angel anchors his words to John on the speech that is on the voice of Jesus. And what is Jesus saying to his people? Behold, I am coming soon. We've heard this before in Revelation, and we've actually heard echoes of this throughout Scripture. If I go, I will return. You will be my people, and I will be your God, forever dwelling together. This has always been the plan, that Christ will come back and dwell with us. And he continues on, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. That is, Jesus wants his words written down, which we have, which you're looking at together, which we've looked at together as a church through history, and he wants them read, and he wants them preached, and he wants them studied over and over. It's just like a, a good relationship, right? We start to trust somebody more and more the more we hear their words over and over hey i love you i'm gonna stick with you 
I'm not going anywhere. It's the same thing that Jesus wants for us as the scroll is left open. We get to hear again and again, he's coming. And the Holy Spirit applies his words to us. We see, too, that blessing, not cursing, not fear, not anxiety, is associated with understanding this book and understanding that Jesus is coming. It's not supposed to be fear-inducing. It's supposed to be comforting. It's supposed to grant us hope and encouragement. And if we believe that Jesus is actually coming, we get the house ready. John 2 wants us to be absolutely sure that he himself is trustworthy. And so he includes this significant, even embarrassing story about himself in the middle of the passage. That's the type of thing that builds up trust in a relationship. We don't shy away from hiding the, the funny bits of our lives from each other. right? You see that in, in verses 8 and 9. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. These first four verses, they center in on the fact that we can trust what Jesus has said, what's been revealed, because we're actually holding on to it. And we know that John's not painting a, a one-dimensional image of himself. He did something wrong, and he includes it. He doesn't try to whitewash the history of receiving the book of Revelation. And John is staking his own claims of Jesus' revelation to him on the fact that Jesus already lived, Jesus already died, and Jesus rose again. These are facts. Facts and knowledge to build your life on and to build your hope on. And I, I love that this angel's like, bro, what are you doing? Like, I'm not better than you. I'm, I'm a fellow worshiper. Uh, we shouldn't be, like, you shouldn't be bowing before me. We're, we're of equal status. We both bow before God alone. And it's kind of funny, kind of not, kind of funny in that John already did this. This happened one other time already in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. John bows before the angel. It's like, John, what, what are you doing? It's the same guy is like pushing on a pull door. Like, you got to stop doing this. You got to bow where you're supposed to bow. It's not funny and then it says something very serious and very specific about who we are and what our response can be to good news, even very good news. Human beings are made to worship. It's what our hearts do on the regular, whether we're thinking about it or not. We're, we're living to glorify God, or we're living to glorify ourselves. I don't think any Christian in here is going to sort of in boldness take the hymnal out from in front of you and scratch out how great thou art and write in how great I am. It's silly, but we functionally operate like that in times. In this particular section, John recounts likely with some blushing, that he was so enthralled with this news about Jesus coming that he hit his knees to, to worship the angel, who quickly tells him, do not do that. And you might say, well, that's not me. I don't worship angels. It's not really a struggle that I have. That's great. 
But it's John's response that really questions our own. If something held out a changed reality to you, something promised to take the pain away, promised to make everything better, what would you do? You bow, I bow. As the reformer John Calvin said, our hearts are idle factories. We're constantly looking for things to satisfy us, things that we think are worthy of our worship, and they're not. We have to have a rightly oriented heart to be able to worship God truly. And I love, I love how that angel doesn't like, you know, sort of smack John around. He just says, don't do that. Worship God. Even though this is the second time he's told him. It's a gentle rebuke. And we should all hear that call away from improper worship in our own lives. But because our hearts are bent toward wrong worship, and we live in a world that worships the creation and not the creator, as the book of Romans unpacks for us, that wrong worship is, is worthy of condemnation. It's worthy of judgment. And that judgment starts to come into view in our next section. We're seeking to understand, again, our response to Jesus' coming. And we're going to look at that together in verses 10 through 13. We have the angels speaking and then Christ speaking after him. Look at those verses with me. Verse 10, he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Every great Western movie, it opens with a, sort of a, the sheriff walking out of, uh, it's either the saloon, the sheriff's office, doesn't matter. He walks out, he probably checks his holsters, dual wielding, okay, straightens out his badge. Camera pans over, right hand side, and there's a list of wanted posters in the window. $500 reward for the, for the outlaw, the, the, the deacon Dwayne, dead or alive. funny <laughs> a good sheriff won't take down that poster he wants everyone in town to know that he's deadly serious about taking action he means business jesus is speaking similarly here don't roll up the scroll don't toss revelation away don't read through your new testament just sort of cherry pick the parts that sound good to you I want you to know that I am coming soon and that I am bringing my judgment with me. Moreover, we're supposed to expect things to continue on in a way that's hard, yes, but realistic until Jesus comes. We don't have to be sort of convinced of this. We see it all the time. People are going to continue to be wicked and filthy, even Christians. We struggle with our own sins. But Jesus is saying, keep doing deeds of righteousness and, and keep pursuing uh, Christ and personal holiness. 
but do not close up this book. Because this book is not a message just of condemnation and fear and judgment, but a book of hope. We have to remember over and over our guest of honor is coming and we're setting the table for the feast. He wants as many at the table as will receive his words with faith and trust, as will receive him with faith. So we're told, you know, do not roll up the scroll. Let my words ring out. Jesus here isn't being mean-spirited. He's not changing his tune. This has been the call of Christ from the very beginning. Matthew 3.2, as, as Jesus is starting his ministry, he says, repent and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus arrives, that drives individuals to change, to look at their lives and either to profess faith or to turn away. Jesus wants us to repent, to believe. His arrival, though, isn't only about judgment, again, but, but about showing people a better way. How do I get this bounty off of my head? That bounty that is rightly placed there. Jesus offers a solution. So Jesus keeps speaking, I am coming soon. In chapter 22, he's going to say this three times. We see two of them in our passage just today. When we see three things most of the time in Scripture, it's usually not casual, it's not accidental, it's emphatic, it's real. There's a sense of heightening by repetition. We're not supposed to miss this. Jesus is coming. But what he says after this, this is some of the language of revelation that is scary to people. I am coming soon, and I am bringing my recompense with me. Recompensation, I guess in one sense. I I am going to repay each one for what he has done. Do you hear the individuality here? The accountability. We can't point over there and say, that person over there, they they made me do my sin. Uh, That's why I'm like this. That's why I keep sinning against you, God. Right over there, that's where it happened. There is no hiding. There's no pointing your finger at someone else. Jesus will repay. He's not like Santa Claus. It's not like a bunch of presents or a lump of coal, and then you get a chance to do better next year. He's the Holy One, King Jesus, the God-man. And he's not repeating himself and and talking about his judgment like a parent that's counting to three, right? Jesus isn't going one, two, two and a half, two and three-quarter, two and seven-eighths. I remember hearing that a lot as a child. (laughs) I can't hear you, Mom. Uh... That's how we live. We live like Jesus is still counting. Two and five, 15 sixteenths. And so in the meantime, while we're waiting, we're, we're working to balance out the scales. Well, I did a lot of bad in my life, so I better start doing a lot of good. Or we're casually tossing our sins aside as though we can clean it up and come to Jesus when we're good and ready. Friend, hear me, Jesus is not like that. 
God is always just. He doesn't just sort of flip the switch on and his justice comes down at the end. His justice is, it, it is his character alongside his, his mercy and his um, love. You are either in Christ by faith where the wrath that your sins deserve, have, they've fallen, that wrath has fallen on Christ, has been poured out on him, or you are standing on your own with God's judgment, eternal judgment upon you. It is black and white. God is patient. 2 Peter 3.9 comments on the Lord's patience saying, The Lord is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But I think we all do this, this game. We play this game where we think, well, I've got more time. I, I feel like I'm doing better, so I don't really need to... I don't really need to change now, or I've substituted this type of sin for this type of sin. This is lesser. You know, I'm not as bad as that guy over there. God's judgment isn't anchored in your conception of time. God's judgment is anchored in who he is. That's why verse 13 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Do you really want to play that game? But there are far more wicked people than I am. I, I, I can just, I'm not really hurting anybody, am I? I? I can keep this up. God knows your time. He knows your heart. And he beckons you to come and receive his grace through Christ. Every one of us here is promised tomorrow. In fact, we are all eternal. No one here just sort of floats out of existence. We all have a tomorrow. It might not be on this earth. But what we do in this life, whether we're clinging by faith to Christ and his promises or in selfishness and, and rebellion, attempting to stand on our own two feet, it matters forever. I'm not going to start singing uh, Tim McGraw's Live Like You're Dying, but it's not half bad advice, especially when it comes to your sin. And what you're trusting in this life. We, we lose perspective on that. That one day our lives will come to an end. And whether we've trusted in Christ or we're still trusting in ourselves, it matters. It matters immensely. So don't play around with sin. Turn, confess, believe in Jesus Christ. Receive forgiveness and so much more. Be made new. Be clothed. Be washed. Let's consider together our last point, seeing Jesus' call as we look at verses 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gate. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I think this passage ends like a horror film, right? Close to Halloween. Hollywood writer, see verse 15. Okay, I think I can do something with this. It sounds scary. It sounds horrible. There's dogs 
and sorcerers, the sexually immoral, and murderers. And again, most of us are like, okay, dodged a bullet. Last time I uh, practiced any witchcraft was a Halloween outfit, actually. Back in 06, cast a spell, wasn't real. So I'm feeling good. I'm feeling confident. And then John says that idolaters are outside. And everyone who loves and practices falsehood. It's a little broader. And so I start squirming a little bit, wishing I could grab a little white out. John doesn't paint in shades of grays. It's black and white. There are insiders and there are outsiders. So in the context of chapter 22, what we've read, what we've heard before, how are we supposed to conceive of this? One commentator talked about, like, are these outsiders? Is that like the suburbs? You drive out far enough from the heavenly city, and all of a sudden it just gets really bad. You know, the neighborhood's like, I don't want to go there after dark. How are we going to be in this heavenly city where the gates are always open, where it's only the presence of God and glory and goodness, And outside are the dogs and the sorcerers. Are we going to hear them? I don't believe so. There's mystery here. But I believe that John is giving us a picture of a, a spiritual separation at first. And at the time of Christ's judgment, at the time of Christ's return, a spiritual distinction that takes on a physical dimension one that coincides with Scripture's teaching on hell. There they will be, the dogs and the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And they will not want anything to do with where we are at. Their selfishness and sin will be magnified, not glorified. And they will want and desire only more sin. They'll be assuredly anti-God and anti-truth. C.S. Lewis writes in The Great Divorce, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Don't miss what it says here, though. It's individuals who love sin. They love to practice sin. They love falsehood. So there's like a litmus test that's going on with our own battle with sin. Do you love it? Do you you practice your sin? You try to get better at it? Do you look forward to your sin? Do you plan your day around your sin? Sort of thinking about when your spouse is going to be gone or when when the kids are going to be gone or when you know that your boss isn't looking, isn't watching? Do you lie automatically? Do you confess lightly? Uh, you know, I, I, I stumbled a little bit. What do you mean? If you're comfortable with sin to the point that it grieves you to think of losing it, like it would grieve you if you lost a loved one, this is a wake-up call to get uncomfortable. And if you're only frustrated with the consequences of your sin, man, I can't believe I got caught. This is a call to turn. You 
of your own volition cannot white-knuckle it. You can't exchange one sin for another. You can't wipe your own slate clean. You need to be made new. You need to confess and be forgiven. Brother, sister, hear me. If you are wrestling with your sin, if it grieves you, if it, if it causes you great frustration, and you hate it, and you long for the day when you're finally done with it, then you have nothing to fear from God. It's sort of a, a consequence of living the Christian life that you get to feel what a war feels like being waged inside of yourself daily. A war that is one in Christ, but that demands our participation in putting sin to death and living for righteousness. So bring your sin out, bring it out of the darkness, bring it into the light, and know that Jesus isn't calling you to come to him so that he can humiliate you, so that he can shame you, so that he can leave you standing condemned and afraid. Realize that that is what Christ did for you. He was the one who stood there humiliated, condemned. Listen again to verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gate. It's because some of the sin stuff is heavy let, let me add the the beautiful promise of first john 1 9 if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so blessed are those who who wash their robes and we love to hear this that jesus is in the laundry business he loves to wash he desires you to come and be washed not just from what you've done even some of us are, are, are thinking that, like, I'm, I'm living a pretty morally decent life right now. But Jesus washes us from everything. Sins we've done and sins that have been done to us. The suffering that we've endured. These ones that are, are blessed are the ones that wash their robes. They're a distinct group. They're the elite laundry doers. But what does John mean? What are these robes? Where and how should we wash them? Revelation has mentioned robes numerous times. We've seen it in Revelation chapter 6 and chapter 7, chapter 19. And we're told in some that the ones who have washed their robes have washed them in the blood of the Lamb. That Christ himself wears a robe that is dipped in blood. And it's poetic language. It's supposed to be evocative. It paints a picture in our minds that has staying power, right? We, we love this imagery because it sticks with us. We know our Savior wore a crown of thorns and blood likely dripped from his head and from his wounds on the robe that he wore as he went to die. His own blood poured out, but it wasn't blood that stained, but blood that purified. Jesus wants us to be blessed, to be cleansed, to be clean, but he's implying the very obvious that we are dirty. And no amount of scrubbing, no amount of mental power or blame shifting can remove the guilt that we carry. Sin doesn't come off like you go take a quick shower after working out. It's, it's not like that. Sin doesn't come off that way. But Jesus' blood was shed 
a perfect sacrifice for you. And not only that, but he was raised in triumph over sin and death, and his life is now yours by faith. These robes are Christ's own righteousness granted to us. We put them on by professing our faith in Jesus, and once they are on, they never come off. You are forever white. You are forever clean before God. But in this life, it's a continual washing. We don't believe in Jesus once and then sort of live our lives for ourselves. Indeed, we receive the Holy Spirit who draws us to confess Christ's name again and again. We need help. And not only do we profess faith in Jesus, but we confess over and over. It's an ongoing process that demonstrates the work and the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Those who have washed their robes may have the right to the tree of life, and they may enter the city by the gates. There's a Greek word here that, that says they have the right to in, in most of our texts. It's, it's not only that, it's actually power and authority over the tree of life. Through Jesus, we have come to possess what our parents, Adam and Eve, could never possess. As we're walking into the, the eternal city, to the city of God, this tree is a marker that eternal life has commenced and it will never stop. It has commenced through the work of Jesus. And in the context of this passage, a, a symphony has started. It's reaching a crescendo. Keep reading the truth of the scroll. Keep reading about the judgment of sin. Keep reading about the grace offered through Christ. Louder and louder and louder. Jesus is coming. There is no time to delay. You don't need to clean yourself up. Jesus is calling you. He wants to wash your robes so that you can be ready. Jesus, our bridegroom, the one who we've truly longed for, he is coming. And we, we pray and we say again, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we long for that day. We long for that day of your return. When the robes that we've put on spiritually by faith in Christ, when they're glorified, when they're perfected, no longer stained by our own sin or the suffering of this world, we're so thankful that we are forever white, forever clean because of the righteousness of Christ that's been applied to us. We pray that we would not shy away from reading Revelation. That you'd give us hope. Hope when we're wrestling. Hope when we're doubting. Hope when we are fretting and concerned. That we can turn to you and be washed again and again. That you cleanse us. That your blood has purified us. It has reconciled us. It has redeemed us. We're so thankful for that. 
Father, we pray that you would come quickly, that you would send your son, and that you would hold on to us and remind us of your love for us, that we might have endurance and perseverance until that day. We pray these things in Jesus' name.